0: And to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue.
1: Again, the passage is Luke 5:33 through 6:11. Please stand if you're able for the reading of that right. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often, and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, it will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of like the of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Then he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man there was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, or to save life, or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. He said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgusted with one another, that they might, about what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God.
0: Well, good evening. Uh, My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. and... We continue to ask the question, um, what does the Gospel of Luke say about the kingdom of God? And in this particular passage, um, I think we see that uh, the kingdom of God is a place of feasting and of joy and jubilation. We saw a couple of weeks ago that when Jesus gave his first sermon, his inaugural address, if you will, in the synagogue of Nazareth, his hometown, he talked about the year of jubilee. And he said, that's the model for my ministry is this 50th year in the Jewish calendar where all debts were forgiven. The land was restored to the original owners. Slaves were set free. And Jesus said, that's a picture of what my kingdom is going to be like on earth. So throughout the Gospel of Luke, you keep seeing that idea repeated. And um, in this particular passage, we see uh, one example of great jubilation, which is uh, a wedding feast. Um, In verse 34, Jesus compares his ministry to the ministry of a a wedding feast. He says, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? They're having an argument about whether uh, his disciples are fasting or not. And he says, uh, the reason we don't have to fast is because I am essentially, I am the bridegroom. And I'm here enjoying my wedding feast with my bride, which is uh, his people. He's come to gather his people as a groom has come to uh, get his bride. And so, think about your experience with wedding feasts. Um, with the, maybe the, think of uh, the best wedding reception, uh, rehearsal dinner combo weekend you've ever been to. Um, you know, think about the setting where it was, and the people that were there, and the food that was there, the drinks, uh, the dancing, the music. And if you take that, uh, what you have in your mind right now, and you multiply that by seven, that is, a, that is what they would have experienced in Jesus' day as a wedding feast, because it was a seven-day event, oftentimes, and the entire, you know, school was out the whole week, and um, there was, it was, the whole village was on holiday, and everyone was involved, there weren't invitations, everyone in the village just came, um, and you can read about what they did exactly, but you know, it would have been days and days of the richest food they had, the finest wine they had, uh, all the best musicians would have gotten together and played, they would have been dancing. Uh, it was this huge celebration. And so that is what Jesus says is a picture of his ministry. Is a minute where he is the bridegroom and he's come to eat and drink with his people and dance and sing. and um, And the people in this passage hate it. It's kind of hard to believe that that a person would hate uh, someone who's come and say they're the bridegroom and that they've brought this wedding feast. But look at the way the whole passage ends because of what he does on the Sabbath day, which is to bring joy into this man's life by healing his hand. It says in verse 11, the scribes and Pharisees, those are the religious leaders. Those are the uh, religious professionals of the day. People like me and people like Austin, um, paid professionals. They were filled with fury. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Not for Jesus. They weren't going to throw him a party. They were, they were planning what to do to Jesus. In other words, they were planning, already planning how they might hurt him. How they might take him out. Uh, because of this ministry of Jubilee. And Jesus said that what he had come to do uh, basically just blew up. You know, just, it, it, their, their preconceptions just exploded about what... God was like, what the Messiah was like. And so he compares it to new wine in verse 37, put in an old wineskin. And so the new wine would be Jesus, uh, and the old wineskin would be their old views of what God was like, of what piety, what devotion was like. And Jesus says that if you put new wine in an old wineskin, what's going to happen to the old wineskin? It's going to blow up. That's what he's saying that he's come to do. So I want to look at those two things, the First, the wedding feast idea and uh, the way he embodies the bridegroom. And then second, the way that that just explodes your categories for what religion is, what God is like, um, what we are like. So those two things. And first of all, the wedding festivals. uh, in In the beginning of the passage, the religious gatekeepers are already becoming more skeptical of Jesus. We saw that when Austin preached a few weeks ago. It got stronger last week with the paralytic story. And so the religious leaders are becoming more and more skeptical of this guy who they've come to check out. And they ask, um, in verse 33, the disciples of John fast and pray, as well as the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So they're making a contrast between the two great religious leaders of the day. If you read uh, even secular sources that are not in the Bible, John the Baptist was a really big deal. In Jesus' day, he was he was far more famous than Jesus was in his day. Um, he was known about outside of Judaism, and he was revered by all. He was um, he was very ascetic. In other words, he didn't uh, he, he was had a lot of self control over his body, what he ate and drank. No alcohol. He was always fasting. He lived in the desert. He called people to repentance. He was a, a righteous and just man. He was martyred for his uh, commitment to integrity and justice, and. They are comparing John the Baptist to what Jesus is doing, and they're saying that what Jesus is doing is like what you would see like in the movie Animal House or A Really Bad Fraternity Party. If you've seen that movie, like John Belushi character, you know, Blue Toad, They see Jesus as that kind of figure. So picture that person in your head, uh, and that's the way they see Jesus. In the last chapter, Luke 5, 29, it said that Levi, who was a tax collector, so one of the worst folks in town, like a drug dealer, um, he made a great feast in his house for Jesus, and he brought all of the biggest party animals in Capernaum, and he gave Jesus this huge feast with his disciples. And that's the kind of thing that the religious leaders are saying, that doesn't compute for us. That's not the way we see piety and devotion to God uh, and faith. In fact, he was so festive... That uh, I love this. His enemies called him a glutton and a drunkard. It says in Luke 7:33 we're going to get to that in a few weeks um, Jesus is, is mocking them, and he says, "I have come to you eating and drinking, and you say to me, "Look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners." I mean, think about that. Um, people accuse Jesus of a lot of things. they accuse him of of being a blasphemer because he claimed to be God. Uh, they accused him of being a deceiver because he was drawing all the people to himself. Uh, they accused him of insanity. His own family went out to take him away because they were saying he's out of his mind. So a lot of accusations were leveled against Jesus, but this is my favorite by far, that Jesus was accused of being a, a glutton. In other words, he ate way too much and a drunkard. He drank way too much. One scholar said that if you read the Gospels, Jesus is either eating somewhere, or he's going away from a feast, or he's going to a feast. But he's always in some way moving around uh, meals and uh, and parties. Even the way we describe it would be parties, I think. And it's um, it's just a striking contrast to the way Christians are portrayed. Um, someone like Ned Flanders uh, in The Simpsons. People who are very uh, very serious. We're very safe. We're very secure, Um, not too much fun, not too much excitement, but very nice. Um, Comfortable, uh, not drinking too much, at ease, a patient, better driver, a safer car, baby smiling in the back seat. That's from a Radiohead song. Um, A a description of someone who's just kind of uh, sedentary. That's the way, not too much uh, excitement is the way people think of Christians. One American humorist, H.L. Minkin is his name, who was not a fan of Christianity. He defined Puritanism as the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. The haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. And I think a lot of people think that's what Christians are. We're like, where's the happy person? Let's squash that happiness. And um, when God became a human, he was taken to be uh, a glutton. That's amazing. That when the God of the universe became a human being, that's the way he was perceived. And just think about that and, you know, insert that into the way that you think about God. That God would be, when the Savior of the world came, he was described as a heavy drinker. He was thought to be a heavy drinker. And obviously he was not a glutton, he was not a drunkard, but he, he was perceived that way because of the way that he lived. And that's just something you don't want to just pass by too. That's, that's an amazing fact. Um, you know, I can tell you that uh, other religious leaders, uh, Socrates, Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, they were not, they were not thought to be glutton, uh, a glutton or a drunkard. There's something about Jesus that's very different in that way from any other world religious leader. And I, and I love that about him. Um, I love that about him, but then I also don't really know a whole lot about that, I have to say. Um, that I do like to eat a lot, but I'm not super comfortable with... Uh, with parties and uh, with dancing, not at all. Um, And I really can't say that I've tried to become really comfortable with that. I've never really prayed, Lord, help me to enjoy parties more or to be able to dance uh, better. Um, Although my friend has encouraged me to take dance lessons and uh, I know that offer is still out there. Um, But my natural bent is to judge, uh, to judge the party scene and um, Probably because in high school I was not invited to a lot of them. I have um, kind of turned against them. And, uh, and I think that I'm not the only one like that. I think that a lot of Christians are kind of like that. We pretend it's holiness, but it's actually just fear. And it's, uh, it's being afraid of what's, what's out there um, or, or losing control in some way. So my daughter is applying to Wake Forest University. And, uh, and then I found out recently someone said, that, do you know that Wake Forest is ranked as the number eight party school in the country. And that did not encourage me at all about her going there. So I looked that up on Tuesday because that just flashed through my mind when I was thinking about Jesus being a party animal. And, uh, and I read the reason why. It's, um, it's this thing and they publish among students. By, and Princeton University goes out and does all this research and they interview people. And this is the reason that Wake Forest was ranked number eight. Uh, It says, Wake Forest students work extremely hard on weekdays, but, and these are quotes now, absolutely let loose on weekends. That's a quote from a student. The school's vibrant social scene and a schedule that is always bustling with extracurricular activities keeps the candle burning at both ends, and parties, going to bars downtown, concerts, game nights, and chill hangouts at friends' houses are other methods of fun. While Greek life is highly visible, there are also organizations like the Student Union that quote, promote other fun aspects of campus life, movie nights, guest speakers, and campus carnivals. Students take part in lots of great traditions, shag on the mag dance, Project Pumpkin, uh, hit the bricks, race to support cancer research, rolling the quad, and dinner at the on-campus restaurant Shorty's, which that part surprised me that that would be thrown in there for why Wake Forest is a party school. But the point being, I felt like such a jerk to have judged you know, that ranking as if that was somehow innately horrible, that a school would be ranked high, uh, and it's partying. I mean, we all have this idea in our minds, you know, partying means uh, drug use, alcoholism, and hookups. And there is a lot of that, to be sure. Um, but at the same time, a wedding festival is also a party and Jesus being a bridegroom is someone who is joyous and he's filled with jubilation because it's his year of jubilee. And, um, so when people accused him of being these things, he simply said in verse 34, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And this wasn't the only other place, uh, this is the only other place he says this. He says it in Matthew 22:3, 3. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. It's a theme in his teaching that he is now come to earth and his father, the king, is going to give him a wedding feast. And he is there to claim for himself a bride. And so why not? Why not be a time of festivity and a time of, uh, of party. So if you're at a wedding reception and you find yourself what's, judging what's going on, you know, the, I don't really like the way that they're, they're dancing, I don't like the songs they're playing, the lyrics are lewd, or too much alcohol, stuff like that, which I do, you, you need to kind of check yourself and think about the way uh, that Christ came as a bridegroom and came to feast with his bride. To woo her to himself, to call her to himself, and then to feast. And when you get that idea in your head about what God is really like, the God of festivity, uh, then that will explode uh, your categories. um, And that's what he talks about next. Point two, that that it's explosive. That you try to put him in these little Tupperware containers and there's just too much energy and it just blows the whole thing up. And so these two little mini parables about the new cloth and then the new wine. Verse 36, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. I have no idea what that's about. So I had to read about it. And apparently new cloth is unshrunk. So a, a, a new piece of cloth is, uh, has not shrunk yet. But when you wash it, it shrinks. Okay, so um, if you use a piece of unshrunk cloth to patch your jeans, which nobody does anymore because you can actually buy them when they're torn. So nobody, <laughs> nobody has any experience with this. But if you wash your jeans with a patch that is new fabric, uh, that piece will shrink, the other will not shrink, and it will tear it. That's what he's talking about here. And so what he is saying is um, you cannot patch me into your life, that I am not going to serve as a little piece of fabric that will take care of a little problem in your life, that I am way too expansive for that. I have way too much energy, uh, way too alive, way too dynamic for that. You cannot keep your old ways and then just add in a little sprinkle of Jesus. That's not the way that uh, you can integrate him into your life. A lot of us come to him thinking we can do that. And maybe even right now you're, you're relating to him as a patch, But uh, he will rip a hole in your life because you can't you can't be in a relationship with God incarnate, the bridegroom to help you be less lonely or to give you mental health or to help raise your kids or whatever it is to bring stability into your life. That cannot be the basis of that relationship because uh, he is not there to give you a little something, but to give you himself to take over your life. To live in you. So imagine yourself as a living house. This is a a parable that I read. God comes in to rebuild your house, or at least that's what you think. At first, you understand what he's doing, fixing the drains, stopping up a few leaks in the roof, and you needed those things. uh, You knew that those things needed doing, but then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and makes no sense. What on earth is he up to? Well, he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a whole new wing here and putting on an extra floor there. And he's running up towers and he's building courtyards. And you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace and intends to come and live in it himself. So that is the grandeur of the vision that Jesus has for your life. If you put your faith in him. If you let him come into you. Um, he can't patch you up. But he will he will explode into your life. And he will bring into your life. This hospitality. That we've been talking about. This festivity. This energy for welcome. This refusal to reject. That will That will be brought into your life. And you might try to hold it down. Or squelch it. But it's going to be there. And so why not just let it out uh, his own feasting, uh, his own welcome to other people. I just saw the movie, little women. And there's a beautiful scene at Christmas, several scenes at Christmas. But this one scene at Christmas where the March girls, four daughters are sitting down for this huge Christmas feast, um, best day of the year, best morning of the year. They're about to eat it. And their mom comes in from visiting their neighbor. Uh, and the, the neighbor is a widow and has little tiny children. And, uh, the neighbor's very, very poor. And the mom says, we need to take our, our feast and, and have it there. And you can see the disappointment in the children when she says that. But then they all go over there and they bring joy and life into that little home. And I see that as a picture of the, the way that, that Christ uh, comes into your life and then moves out. Always moving out. Um... You cannot keep him locked up inside the four walls of your house. As much as those March girls wanted that, and as much as we yearn for that, and in some ways, you know, there has to be boundaries, but, um, but there's so much energy in him in you, if you know him, to bring in others. And uh, certainly we cannot bottle him up inside of a, of a church uh, and make this a place of friends, like a, a little friend group. That's not what the church can ever be. The church is always... Primarily existing for those who are not here. I mean, we do exist for each other as well. That's very important. But what are we really here for? We're here to call in those, to welcome in those, like Jesus, like the bridegroom. And so he says uh, in verse 37, the new wine will burst the skins. It's too big uh, to hold it in. It's got too much energy. And when you put... Uh, new wine in an old dried up leather wineskin and you can google that and take a look at what it looks like it's like a backpack it's leather uh, about this big and so if it gets old and is doesn't move anymore if you put new wine inside of that it just the new wine it makes it explode because there's too much energy in there and i had an experience with this in a different way with a yard cart. so it was a we had a christmas party and then we had a bonfire and after the bonfire was out i decided the next morning to put the ashes of the bonfire very naturally and rationally into my plastic yard cart. And so um, I had all the ashes in there and I decided to let the leave the, the, the thing, the the lid off so that there could be some air that gets in there and it wouldn't, you know. So the air got, got in there and I got into my kitchen and I was cooking breakfast and I looked outside and there was a fire. There was like a little there were flames shooting up out of my yard cart. And if you drive by my house on a day they pick up uh, the yard waste you can see that the front has just been shredded. It's just like been melted. And the reason was, of course, that the, the oxygen just caused the, the flames to just light up. There was too much... It looked like it was not there, but there was huge amounts of energy inside of my plastic container. And in the same way, there's just way too much... It might, you might not be able to see it there, but there is, there is this energy and this power inside of us individually, if we're believers, and inside of us collectively as believers, and it, and it will get out. Uh, the new wine will will burst through the old skins. And I think so often we, um, we really lean into a spirituality of restraint, of restraint, which is occasionally appropriate, where we're like, Lord, help me with less alcohol, less calories, less, less shopping, less staying up late, looking at less screens, and, and on and on and on. And that is good at times, the self-control, the restraint. Um, but I think there was, there's another way where Jesus leaned into... Um, a, a spirituality of expansion. Um, not just keeping things tight and close, but actually, uh, like Jesus saying, I am the bridegroom, can you make the wedding guests fast? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. An expansiveness to uh, to faith in Christ that is so beautiful and so radical and so unique. It, it really does blow up your categories of what you think that God is like. Uh, the Pharisees thought of the Sabbath as a time Mostly of restraint and what you can't do. And so they're always nitpicking throughout all the Gospels. They're, they're nitpicking Jesus about what you cannot do, what he is doing on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the seventh day, the day of rest, the day of worship. And in verse two, it says that uh, the Pharisees asked Jesus, why are you picking grain on the Sabbath? And then they asked, why are you healing this man on the Sabbath? Why are you doing this on the Sabbath? And again and again and again there, it's this idea of like restraint and don't do this, don't do this. And his response is to kind of, again, to blow up the idea they had of what Sabbath is. And so he claims uh, in verse 5, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Which that in itself is a shocking claim to divinity. That uh, he alone gets to determine what the Sabbath is really about. I mean, he, he's saying that to religious leaders. He's saying, I invented the Sabbath, and I'm telling you what it's for... And he says the, 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 the Sabbath was not made as a, as a taskmaster for humans. But the Sabbath was made for joy for humans. The Sabbath was not made um, to be some kind of series of rules and regulations. that You can't do these things to hem us in. It was made to increase our joy. Uh, he says man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. As the Lord of the Sabbath. And I love how he gets angry here. It doesn't actually show up in the Gospel of Luke. But if you read the Gospel of Mark, same story. In Mark 3, 5, Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. This is when they're saying you can't heal the man. And uh, they're in the Sabbath synagogue. There's the guy with the withered hand. He's there. They're seeing if he's going to heal him because they want to trap him. And uh, he knows what they're thinking, and he becomes angry. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. And in verse 9, there's, there's a, this is kind of sarcastic. This is a snarky comment where he says, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or destroy it? And there's, there's some of that uh, anger in that statement. Because the answer should be so obvious. This Sabbath is not made as a time to hold people down, but to heal them. This is part of my wedding feast ministry. And so he says in verse 10, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And it was restored. So the bridegroom comes into a world that is dreary and lonely, and gloomy and sad and he fills it with, his, with color, if you will. Fills it up with color. A black and white world. You might have seen this terrible movie, Pleasantville. I hope you haven't seen that movie. But if you have seen the movie, Pleasantville, it's an awful movie. But there is one cool concept in it, which is that it's like set in this leave-it-to-beaver kind of Midwestern town of the 50s. And everything's black and white. And uh, everything is kind of conformist. You know, the, the awful 50s, the Eisenhower years. Um, and then when people start to do things that are uh, really outside the box, which is always sexual in the movie for some reason, it's like ridiculous, but when they do something kind of outside the box, then they turn color, then, then they, they become fully, you know, in color. And uh, it's, a, it's a terrible movie, but it's a, it's a beautiful idea of people suddenly, uh, when they do something creative or innovative, in the best sense, uh, they become uh, fully colored. And... That's what Jesus came to do, uh, to, to bring um, color into a world that is black and white. And it says in Matthew 8, 11, that, that in the last day, when he comes again, there will be a great feast, and, and all the black and white will be gone. He says, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And reclining at a table was the posture of of a great wedding feast. So that's his metaphor to the very end. In fact, when he served the Lord's Supper uh, for the first time, when he served it to his disciples, he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you and my Father's kingdom. Again, referring
1: to uh, this ministry of, of the wedding feast.